0: Welcome to Evolutions of Astrology, this is Dina DiCastro. On this episode, I'll be interviewing Tem Turektar, editor of The Mountain Astrologer. So I'm really excited to present this interview with Tim Tarek uh, He is the editor of The Mountain Astrologer. And if you have not already subscribed to this magazine and you're interested in astrology, you really need to. Um, I began reading The Mountain Astrologer back in the early 90s when uh, I guess it hadn't been out too many years by then, uh, but it was something that my mom always had around and it really was the thing that sparked and fueled my beginning interest in astrology um, and actually practicing it. I had been interested for a long time, but reading that magazine is really what allowed me to take it to the next level and begin practicing with charts. It is an excellent tool for students of astrology as well as uh, astrologers who are continuing to expand what they know. So with that, enjoy my interview with Tim Tarekhtar. Well, Tim, welcome to Evolutions of Astrology.
1: Great to be on with you.
0: Thank you. And uh, it's, it's really great to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, so I know as the editor of The Mountain Astrologer, your schedule probably is pretty busy on a typical day. Uh, you're probably always under a deadline. What is the kind of the structure of... Your, uh, your duties with the Mountain Astrologer, and how does a, a typical cycle go for you in the editing of that magazine?
1: Well, you know, um, I've, I've done many things there over the years, and actually, in the last number of years, I've been less of an editor and more of other things, mm-hmm. like publisher, business owner. I've been doing layout and design for the last couple of years. Um, and just recently, um, our advertising person retired, and I've been doing that as well. And um, I won't be doing all that forever, but for the moment, it's pretty busy. Mm-hmm. We have a deadline every two months. And even though it seems like time is speeding up, you know, so, but still there's a deadline every two months. So they seem to be coming quicker and quicker. Yeah, every time.
0: yeah so just as you complete one thing, it's really kind of overlapping into the next.
1: There's three or four issues going on on different levels at the same time. Mm-hmm. One's being distributed, another one's getting ready to go to the printer, another one is being arranged and edited. It's pretty crazy.
0: So what made you want to engage in this craziness originally? <laughs> well, it wasn't a plan you know, by accident,
1: uh-huh. um, I, I like to say. Um, back in 87, I was... Uh, an astrologer doing some readings, not very many, didn't have much money, not much income. Mm -hmm. And I always had a kind of a bent for astrological research, and by research I mean sort of more intuitive, thinking about the zodiac and dividing it up different ways and kind of really trying to get into all the symbols and understand astrology. And I had been doing it for um, four or five years. And uh, then I started realizing I needed to have more readings, so I thought I would do a flyer. Mm-hmm. So I did a flyer, and was going to put it up around Boulder, because I was living not far from Boulder at the time. And uh, I realized, oh, the flyers will just get covered up, so I need to make it like a little newsletter, like a little eight-page thing, Yeah. so that people would pick it up and pay attention to it. And then I said, well, if I make it free, I can't afford to print very many, you know, and... Um, if I make it free, I'm going to have a problem with that. So I put a 59-cent price tag on it and mm-hmm. actually thought I would sell it in a few stores. And I thought I'd call it Mountain Astrologer because everything was mountain this and mountain that at the time up there in the mountains. Right. And that's how it got its name. So I, um, I did that, and I must have printed the first issue with eight pages with a borrowed typewriter and the whole bit, Xerox. And um, I must have made 80 or 90 copies and put it into, convinced a few store owners who must have been pretty amazed that I had the audacity to come in there with this little floppy eight-page thing and sell it (laughs) in their store. Right. And I told them, well, you'll get a quarter and I'll get 34 cents. (laughs) But, you know, I have Mercury and Virgo, so a small (laughs) amount of money never really bothered me. Right. Um, And a number of them agreed to it, about six or seven stores. But mm-hmm. well, that's how it started, actually. It was very small and organic. Wow. And then I decided I'd do another one because I really enjoyed it. And I kind of hit my stride with that because I had been kind of looking for a creative outlet that would maybe eventually promote my career or get something going. Mm-hmm. And it did. Um, but the interesting thing I wanted to say about that was back in, that was 87, and back in 84, I had a progressed new moon. Right. And the progressed new moon was um, exactly conjunct Jupiter at 12 Virgo, Sun, Moon, and Jupiter all together. And so a few years later, here I am starting to publish, you know, and right. it really the shoe really fit. So I, I had a lot of energy to continue doing it, and so I just kept doing it, and it grew and grew really slowly, and now it is what it is.
0: Well, that's really the epitome of of Jupiter energy with that combined with that new moon, um, the the hopefulness, you know, that it must have taken to just kind of. You know, take the leap of faith in and, and do this.
1: Part of it was I just didn't really know any better what it would take or what was involved, and I was just really kind of innocently stumbling into it. And mm-hmm. in Virgo, in a, in a kind of a small way at first, and you know, then very modest, and then growing from there.
0: So it's it's not like you set out with this grand vision of having the the largest. Astrology Magazine in the United States or anything? <laughs> just kinda... In of.
1: I started not even knowing it was a magazine. Uh-huh. Um, I was in the middle of writing the first article when the name came to me of what I should call it, the little newsletter or whatever it was I was doing. And uh, then I, that's, you know, it's just, within a couple of months I thought, oh, I'm going to do this again and it's a magazine. Right.
0: And so it sounds like you were passionately engaged from the beginning too. It was something that organically happened because of your own interests, you know. Yeah. So that was 1987, and then how how long did it take to get to the form that we kind of now see it on the newsstand?
1: It was so gradual. Um, the first time I did a color cover was '93. Before that was like spot color and black. With text on the cover, and for for a while, mm-hmm. and and then maybe in '95 it got its first like more glossy cover, and you know just been a real evolution of growth. It it got to be about half the size it is now, maybe back in about '94 '95. Mm-hmm. So it was very
0: slow. So, who are some of the early um, writers that you had, even uh, as it it was in its early stages, the uh, the first few years?
1: Well, you know, uh, one thing I should say is that um, at first I was doing it by myself, and then I met Kate, my partner, mm-hmm. in she had editing and proofreading skills, which was a match made in heaven at the time, believe me, because yeah. my idea of editing at the time was checking spelling and maybe a few commas. <laughs> I didn't have any experience. But, um, and then gradually more and more staff along the way who, who do the heavy lifting, really. But, um, writers. Um, I first met the astrological community in any significant way in 89 when I went to the UAC conference in New Orleans, and uh, I met a bunch of of people from the astrological community then, and since then, uh, there have been, uh, the magazine's been primarily written by others and only occasional articles from me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd say about 88 or 89, you know, Bruce Schofield, Donna Cunningham, Dana Gerhardt's been writing since um, late 1990. in Mm -hmm. almost every issue. She's one of the most popular writers we have. Yeah. Maya Del Mar did the forecast for a long time in the 90s, and she was very popular too. So we just, I don't know, it's just... One of the things that is really important to me in the magazine is the diversity. We really cover a lot of different types of astrology. We're open to all sorts of... Approaches and writers. And there have been hundreds and hundreds of writers along the way. Mm-hmm. So this really is a, a showcase for them and their their ideas and their skills.
0: And that's really what I've personally appreciated about the magazine over the years is that it has continually broadened my perspective every time I read it. It's, um, you include, uh, all various traditions of astrology and um, different writers that are coming from really different places. So you have the chance to really, you know, be open to more perspectives than just your own or your own branch of astrology. It's, it's incredible in that way.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, I've, I've been pretty amazed by um, just the diversity of what's in there. And I, I, I just think that, that there's, it's just been such a, a long process of, of, you know, trying to cover everything, and not only every different part of astrology that we can possibly represent, but also levels. There are two different levels involved. One is, you know, serving the astrological community, because one really the mission of the magazine is to support astrologers in their work. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's in stores, and it has to. Work as a business, it has to sell enough to keep it going. So it has to appeal to people who are beginners and novices and just people who are interested. So to do that, it's like two magazines in one at right. different levels, and it has to satisfy both groups where we hear about it.
0: Right. I was, I was actually wondering about that, because if it's too specialized you know, as a trade publication, it's not going to get a wide enough you know, support readership. Uh, it seems to me, you know, but you do include things that uh, the general populace will be interested in reading, I think, and are not too technical. But you kind of, you know, how do you you kind of do that balance and that dance, you know, as you're deciding what goes into each issue uh, between those two things?
1: I think the main thing is just to think in terms of um, as much diversity as possible, and then to make sure that uh, at least a third of the magazine is not going to fly over somebody uh, a novice's head too mm-hmm. much right Cause would you buy a magazine where more than half or two-thirds was something you couldn't understand really fully maybe not you know so and you know of course we're not we're not going for a mass market here you know we're trying to kind of serve the people who are drawn to it mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean it's still it's still a specialized you know audience but it's it definitely you have to um, not exclude, you know, those that don't have as much technical expertise. Right? So, what as an editor, what do you find to be the most uh, fulfilling parts of your job as you approach it?
1: Well, um, the creative outlet, helping people get their ideas out there. Um, you know, it's real satisfying to help people get into print. And yeah. The flip side of that is rejection of articles is really difficult.
0: Uh huh. Yeah.
1: Especially since the way it works is, you know, we have to see it before we can accept it or reject it. So they've already put some work into it. And, um, there are lots of different reasons that people's articles get rejected, and oftentimes they're a really great astrologer and their ideas are good, but the article doesn't work for some reason, mm-hmm. the way it's written or whatever. So, um, and we only have. So much time and energy and resources we can put into the editing process it's kind of um yeah it's been tough, but i think we we just do the best we can to be fair and...
0: so that kind of actually leads me to um, a thought like what what would you recommend to those um, young or novice writers out there who would like to get their ideas into print in this field particularly what are your main suggestions
1: I have a few of those Um, I think it's important that people write about what they're really interested in that they either have a passion for or they're just it's what they want to write they're not aiming for like what would be possible to get into the magazine sort of thing Um, so that's the starting point yeah having something to say that you care about and then a good query letter you know a good proposal that is you know that's all we have to judge on whether we want to continue the process on. So it's really important to make sure that that's um, well organized and well done, following the directions that are on our query guidelines on our website, mm-hmm. which by the way is mountainastrologer.com.
0: Yeah, and I'll definitely I'll put that link up too. Oh, great. Uh, with the interview, absolutely. Um,
1: and then also just knowing the publication, you know, like knowing who it is you're writing for. Knowing who the audience is, what types of articles we've run before, what level, and, and then you know, then there's the details, which is which are important. Like making sure that if you if you're going to do an article based on a celebrity example, that you actually have good data for this birth data for the celebrity mm-hmm. that's reliable. So stuff like that. That's that's really the, the way to get published more easily. And there's
0: some unique concerns with um, astrology writing. Uh particularly that aspect of of charts being accurate and birth data and all of that that comes in as a technical piece that might not be something you have to worry about in other other kinds of writing.
1: Yep. Yeah, and another factor is uh oh, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe how many um, article proposals we get about an event that's happening in 2 weeks or a month away.
0: Right. Right.
1: More like well how about eight months yeah a year because we um, it takes us a while being in print it's a whole different speed of course in the internet and a whole different way of doing things so we we lose you know people wait they 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 should be looking further ahead in terms of commenting on um, configurations coming up or things they want to write about that way too
0: so start looking at next year's transits for <laughs> for this year's writing project
1: then we can squeeze a, a short piece in at the last minute because there's space, but mm-hmm. it's really much more um, wise to look, you know, eight to 12 months ahead and pitch something based on that.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think that um, because of the fact that, you know, a lot of what's on the internet is blogging and that kind of writing, that's that's very immediate, that some writers may not be used to thinking in that way right now um, when they're you know, making the transition into print. So that's really an important consideration, um, especially with astrological events that, you know, we can see them coming down the road. So it's something we can also take advantage of,
1: too. That's really what makes astrology pretty unique, isn't it? That yeah. We know in, you know, exactly 11 and a half months from now that certain energies are going to be in play.
0: Right. Right, and speaking of that, <laughs> I think we've all been, you know, looking at uh, what's coming up in 2010, and in fact, um, you know, we won't go too deeply into what's in the next issue, uh, which will be out in just a few weeks. Here, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, Mailed out in about a week.
0: Yeah, so that's coming to subscribers very soon, and then uh, we'll be out on the newsstands in just a, a few weeks. But the April May issue is going to contain a forum and some other articles about. Uh, the Cardinal Cross of 2010, right? Right, yeah. yeah so that yeah. one has been one that astrologers have been looking at for a long time back. And so when, like, in the Mountain Astrologer, when did you first start covering that? It seems like it's been a while.
1: I think I noticed it in, in 2003 mm-hmm. and started writing about it in 2004 and found, of course, others were also, you know, aware of it at that time, but... Um, you know, over the years, just been covering it more and more, and recently a lot in the last couple of years, writing about it. But there's a forum in the April-May issue by three astrologers, myself and you, yourself and mm-hmm. another writer.
0: Yes. Yeah. And
1: also an article on the um, U.S. dollar and world currencies, um, written by Maurice Lavina, who, um who is looking at the dollar, the euro, and other currencies and how, how they're going to Hold up or not hold up this um, upcoming
0: year. Well, I mean that the kind of the big beginning of that is uh, in May, going into June. Really, you know, seems like that's the the month when it starts. You know, uh, with Uranus moving into Aries and such. Um, so that's kind of the kickoff point. So it seems like a, a perfect time. Well, I, there was an article that you had written uh, back in two thousand seven. On this cardinal cross as it is linked to uh, the oil crisis and the the energy crisis and this is a topic that you have been very passionate about and been writing about for years uh, both astrologically and just even outside of that community Uh, you've been uh, writing about and putting the word out about this issue so talk a little bit about how that um, kind of came into your field and what uh, where do you see it now um, as opposed to anything different from when you wrote about it in 2007, or um, is it pretty much tracking with uh, how you felt back then?
1: Well, the the uh, basic idea is that um, we're reaching what's called peak oil, which means it's, it's our maximum capacity to extract oil on a global basis. Yeah. Even though there's still a lot of oil in the ground, we can only get it out so fast, and that's based on geology, economic factors, and other factors. And so the bottom line is that when we, our whole paradigm is based on growth and expansion, industrial growth. And our economy is more or less based on that. So when, and oil is the underlying resource that fuels the economy. Mm So when oil peaks and is not available in the same quantities anymore, when when we start going down the slope of oil availability and and other fossil fuels um, shortly thereafter, we're going to find that um, a lot of things we've taken for granted aren't as available. And it's really going to be a huge transformative force for our society. way we structure our daily lives, you know, it's it's a lot more than travel. You know, oil's in so much. Everything. (laughs) Uh, It is. It's it's in everything, including my ability to publish a print magazine and ship. Right. So uh, for the last five years, I've been really intensively involved in a community group here in Nevada City, California, where we are trying to um, prepare the community for what's coming what we think is coming. Yeah. And see this is the same theme, right? Being Looking at the future, predictions, all this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's with astrology a little. Um, but preparing the community and educating the community about what it means and how we can become a more resilient place and adapt, and also how we can just sustainability in general. So mm-hmm. I've been really involved in that and writing about it. All
0: right. And that particular article, which actually can be found on the Mountain Astrologer website in that sample issue that you have available for download, um, right on the front page of the site, and I'll put a link up to this as well, uh, so you can get a whole a PDF of that entire issue. But the article itself is on uh, starts on page five, but you really lay out well the the whole connection potentially between the years between 2009 and 2014, and all of the transits that are going on there as they potentially relate to the oil crisis in particular and the shortage of resources and energy.
1: The way it's looking is the latest on it is that um, people uh, who are researching this and in the know uh, about it um, believe for the most part that either our oil supply has peaked in 2008, or or it is in the process of peaking now in 2010. It's, it's kind of on a plateau right now mm-hmm. before it starts heading down. And uh, so we're we're right at the peak. Generally, I mean, if you look at the long term, we're we're at the top of a fairly pointy peak. Right. And we're he- going to be heading down. So that's that's how it's looking right now. Although it looks like natural gas may hold out for a little longer. And, There's a lot of issues about coal, but even the coal supply is is limited and will peak in the not-too-distant future at the rate that resources are being used right now.
0: Well, And you made a really interesting connection in that article, too, about Pluto being kind of the symbol of oil, like the riches in the earth, you know?
1: I think there's an as, uh, an aspect of that, because um, I think Neptune's been associated with petroleum traditionally, but the, the underground nature, the hidden, the wealth that's yeah. involved with oil, it, it does sort of resonate with Pluto more.
0: Yeah. Right, and kind of what's what's deeply buried within the Earth, you know, and its, um, it's movement into Capricorn has signaled the onset of a lot of these issues. And we did see gas prices uh, was not about the same time, you know, that they started to shoot up. And,
1: um, and then it triggered a, a number of people feel that the, uh, the, uh, the economic crisis that we've just been through the episode has, it was in part or in large part triggered by high energy prices. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the, the expectation is that what will happen is that when the economy begins to recover, there will be more demand for energy. The price will go way up again because of the limitation on availability. Yeah. And then we'll have another little crash. It will be like a stair-step thing where we have trouble getting out of that particular cycle.
0: Well, it's kind of been what the stock market's been doing. You know, if you look at the, the past uh, since September of 2008 – Um, what happened back then. And then between then and now, it's been this kind of stair-stepping, you know, two steps back, one step forward kind of thing. Um, And then five steps back and, (laughs) you know, three steps forward. So it may just be, you know, who knows, that may be just the pattern, but it does seem also um, reflected in, you know, the transits as they're happening. So this, this points back towards the summer again. And what's Coming with that lineup, as related to, to the economy and oil in particular, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think that part of the power of this alignment in 2010 is that these outer planets are so close to zero degrees of cardinal signs, and uh, you know, people um, in the Uranian branch of astrology and and other astrologers refer to um, the zero degrees of cardinal signs as points that affect a great number of people all at once. Mm-hmm, so have right. Uranus at zero areas is like everybody having a Uranus transit at the same time, more or
0: less. So um, do you have any planets at...
1: <laughs> yeah, I have Venus at two degrees in Kansas. So uh-huh. Almost two.
0: Right there with my Mercury. So I've been saying it's all about my Mercury coming up these next few months, what's going to happen. Um, so, I mean, really bringing it down to the personal level... And you don't have to speak personally about your own life, but how how would you advise somebody who has planets at you know early cardinal right now as an astrologer?
1: Yeah, we have a great discussion thread on that on our um, Mountain Astrologers uh, page on Facebook. Yeah, um, a lot of people um, talking about their own charts and their own experiences. And this, there's one thread on early cardinal planets that's really fascinating to read. Um, I would say that uh, the key words that I'm using are change and intensity, that those are the two things I'm totally sure will be in place this year um, more than in a long time. Yeah. So I think we have to, the skills we need are dealing with change and dealing with sort of a compression of events, like a lot going on at once, very intense. So... In a general sense, that's probably the, the, the things that we can prepare for, or try to prepare for. Mm-hmm. Is, is having... now that, that's that's a whole big can of worms.
0: Yeah, well, one thing that you know I, I've learned as an astrologer is that we can never predict precisely how something will look. You know, we only can narrow down the field, but if we at least are psychologically preparing ourselves for. Uh, this you know these changes and transformations that are coming and the intensity of it um, we can put some things to place in our lives that might help and we can also know that you know maybe the message isn't right now for us about trying to hold on to everything the way it was you know there can come a more acceptance of that change as it's unfolding
1: i think that we you know we tend to see change as threatening and it's just sort of human nature sure hear that i think that um we can view it as a, a gift or an adventure. To some extent, it's hard to do that if it's really unpleasant. But um, at some point, it becomes clear. Right. That there's a, a real gift in it.
0: Well, and you know, you made um, an interesting point also in uh, an article. As I was, you know, doing some research on your past articles in the Mountain Astrologer. Uh, you had uh, written an article called The Responsible Use of Astrology, which really relates to, uh, you know, looking at transits and prediction in a different way and how we use them both as astrologers and in our own lives and not um, basically kind of going along with with the prescribed, you know, keyword jargon, you know, I'm going to give a presentation to somebody and then expect that that's, Really, necessarily going to speak to them unless I'm really attending to the moment and being present with what's going on for this person. Um, And I think we as astrologers can, you know, this is something that I've been looking at too. We can get caught up in this idea that knowing what's coming via the transits can somehow give us some kind of um, protection or, as you put it, insulation against the unknown, you know. And I think that is such an important point. Um, Can you, in your life, you know, how how do you navigate that when you're using astrology for yourself? You know, how do you try to apply that to your own life?
1: Well, when I first got into astrology and started using it, I have to admit that a lot of my motivation was, well, if I know what's coming, I can either avoid it or control it or be so braced for it that it won't hurt as much, or it was sort of a negative, you know, approach. And there, of course, I was also wanting to know how the universe worked and all the good things, too. But, mm-hmm. you know, but I think that, that you know, it's, it's there, there are types of people who are more mental and more fear-based types. You know, if, you, if you're into the Enneagram at all, you know, there are certain fear types and so on. Right. I think for the fear types in particular... Um, or the more mental types, that uh, astrology is so appealing, you know, and you can kind of be in your head, and you can, you know, you can use your mind to project ahead, and see what's coming, and make scenarios, and that's a lot of what is done, and I think that what I was doing by writing that article was trying to put forward, and also to convince myself deeper and deeper, that it really makes a lot more sense to, to trust the heart, and you know, you can use the mental tools, and it's important to know, you know, some techniques and all that. But, but when you're counseling and you're having somebody sitting in front of you who's kind of hanging on your words and really going to give you that power as a counselor, it's really important to um, speak from the present moment, speak from the heart, and allow the right brain to influence the um, the communication, not just the left brain. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much what that was you know, about. And I, as I've gone on more, you know, years and years, and I, and I don't do a lot of charts anymore. I've been so busy with just putting out magazines. So I'm a little rusty on the counseling side, but I, I feel like um, more and more I, I try to keep that in mind. Yeah. And there's a conflict because you know, both sides are still in play for me. The looking ahead and like this article I just wrote in the April May issue, a lot of it is to try to help prepare people for what's coming. So I mm-hmm. see where, where I'm going with that. So I, I sort of struggle back and forth between those two points of view.
0: Well, I think it is, temp, you know, it's very um, alluring, you know, as you said, for for a person who likes to analyze likes to be able to analyze things and break them down, you know, who maybe has a lot of Virgo (laughs) energy in their chart, like I do too. Um, And so, and I've definitely fought with this myself as well. It's like you can get caught up in this illusion of of control with astrology or this illusion that that the outcome is controllable somehow. And it's really not. um, And it's really not predictable. Yeah,
1: the future really is unknowable. Yeah. Yeah. You can get pretty strong clues, but especially in details in, in individual life, it's really unknowable, I think. I think collectively, and, and I mentioned this in my article that's coming up, um, collectively it is more predictable. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are you know, big movements of energy that were set in motion a long time ago. And, and we're, we're all going to be affected by what happens but we have a lot more personal freedom in terms of how we respond to it and at what level we participate in it and how, you know, what, we, what we can do to prepare and so on.
0: Well, that that really makes sense to me because it's at the individual level is where things become most unpredictable, You know, where we can assert our individual free will.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So that's, I think, uh, I mean the, the value of being able to look at transits, you know, it's not so much in predicting what will happen, but in allowing you the opportunity to step in and, um, perhaps affect change or be more proactive with these energies. So as you know, we're, we're coming up to, uh, this, this big 2010 event and, um, uh, as that will pass over the next few months, what do you see on the horizon in terms of uh, the focuses of the mountain astrologer and any other big events out there coming down the road astrologically that you're interested in?
1: Well, let's start with a big event we just had, which was the earthquake in Chile. Right. Right. Last night. And, yeah. Um, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to this full moon before, beforehand, mm-hmm. but, um, It is a supermoon, which is when the moon is full and also very close to Earth. And um, also, I noticed that Pluto was making a septile to Mercury, Neptune, and Chiron. Septile is one seventh of a circle, and um, which is 51 degrees and 20 some minutes of arc. And um, the triple conjunction of Mercury, Neptune, and Chiron in Aquarius and Pluto were both triceptile to Mars. So there was this huge septile pattern going on that I wasn't even aware of, mm-hmm. until looking at the earthquake chart. And, uh, so anyway, it's this, a this, this huge event, and it's always interesting to look, look at the chart and see what, what's happening. The, the triple conjunction alone of Mercury, Neptune, and Chiron is pretty powerful. Um, uh, a tsunami that everybody's concerned about um, traveling through the ocean. You know, you could take the symbolism of Mercury and Neptune, you know, Neptune, the ocean, Mercury, movement and travel. There's, there's a wave going across the ocean. Right. So kind of got love symbols.
0: I know. It's amazing. And then, you know, we, and then I, I look at the idea, though, that we can look back at these things and we can see them. But sometimes it's frustrating to me that we can't, like, we don't know how the cardinal climax of 2010 is going to play out. I mean, in retrospect, I imagine that we'll be able to put together a lot of things. <laughs> but in uh, beforehand, we won't. You know, there's, uh, similarly to 9-11, you know, the really strong symbols uh, in the U.S. chart, you know, with, what was it, Pluto on the ascendant yeah. and uh, Saturn opposed it on the descendant. You know transiting uh, really kind of bold um, symbols and I, I think a lot of astrologers did see that coming up but we could never have predicted that you know specific event It's too surprising and so i think that kind of the nature of reality is that we will we'll never quite be able to just you know say this is coming you know this particular thing or this earthquake uh, i do think though however there's definitely something about moon, uh, the new and the full moon with earthquakes. There's definitely a correlation there. In fact, I noted that the Haiti quake happened two days before the new moon last month and that this earthquake happened two days before the full moon. So it's like building up to that time seems important.
1: The sun and moon are, of course, the tidal for so Right. earthquakes you can make. A pretty intuitive connection to tides being connected to movements of plates and so on.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it is it is really gravitational. You know, it's not just um, symbolic. But uh, we can we can look at those things and the energies of opposition. And I think then when planetary symbols join those those moons, perhaps like you were saying, uh, that that adds more potency to some particular moons, full and new moons.
1: I think um, I think some of the there, there's a full moon coming up this summer, which is an eclipse, a lunar eclipse that actually conjuncts Pluto and Capricorn. And I don't think it's a super moon that one. June mm-hmm. 26.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a few, there's a few to look at, and I think that's probably some of the things that you talked about in the in the forum. Correct?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah I'm looking at some specific charts. That- And uh, one of the other articles in the forum is about Hades, which is a uh, Trans-Neptunian planet that the Iranian astrologers use, and it's entering cancer, so it'll be at zero cancer, while a lot of this other stuff is happening this summer, also at zero degrees of cardinal size.
0: Right, because zero cancer is the only uh, point on the Cardinal Cross that doesn't have one of the, uh, you know, the planets that we normally use um, in astrology it doesn't have you know any of the planets on it but it does have Hades so what what can you say about Hades from what you know um, symbolically
1: well I, I I'm not a Iranian astrologer I know a little bit about them and what I have heard about Hades is that um, it relates to antiquity and people might call the occult, like, for instance, astrology might be grouped in with with that. Um, But it also has to do with um, decay and deprivation and poverty. You know, some of these symbols are pretty intense. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I don't know enough about it to really say much, except that um, Judy Vitale in the magazine has written about it in April May uh, coming up, and also that um, it turns what. Most astrologers would call a T-square into a grand cross if you include Hades.
0: Right. Right, it's kind of the missing point. So it might be really important to look at Hades.
1: Yeah, we're going to find out real soon if, if any of its symbolism is playing into what's happening. I guess one of the points I really want to make is that if, if these things are happening, that means that it's natural and it's, ti- it's time for them. Yeah. If, if these planets are lining up that way. It's not like it's some kind of freak alignment in the sky that shouldn't be there. It's part of the cycles and it's part of nature. So whether we're ready or not, um, as a culture or as a civilization, we have to be alert, we have to be responsive to these energies and trust that they are you know, really for the good because, as we know, there are a lot of things that are really stagnant that do need to change, and these hard aspects the squares and oppositions of the outer planets are just a sign that it's time. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's, that's really beautifully said, and um, I think if we, you know, I agree that if we look at astrology as a way of telling us what is part of the natural cycle, not something that we should be afraid of or feel a victim to, um, then we can really, uh, take the benefit of it and not, you know, put ourselves in that fear place um, so much.
1: And our, our friends and clients will be kind of asking us more and more, what's going on, what's going on? Mm-hmm. More that we can be a force for positive change and helping people who are freaking out in the process of what's going on. That would be a good service to everybody.
0: Right. and uh, You know, I did, uh, I had a client say, the other day that what she gets from astrology in general is that a sense of comfort in the awareness of a larger order to things.
1: Yeah, for sure. And yeah.
0: I think that's, that's, that's it for me. You know, it's definitely the main point, um, that there's, there's that sense of an order. And even though at times we might find ourselves at odds with it or not, uh, it's, it's not like we're floating adrift in a meaningless, uh, sea of chaos you know well Tim it's it's been wonderful having this discussion with you and I thank you so much for being on and sharing your thoughts with us
1: you thanks for having the podcast and for the work you do thank you thrilled that you're in this uh, upcoming issue
0: well I am thrilled to be in and um, I am really thrilled to be a part of the discussion and and uh, look forward to seeing it in print. Really excited about that. Thanks, Tim. Okay. At the page for this podcast episode, you can find links to the Mountain Astrologer magazine, their subscription page, a sample magazine, an article by Tim Tarek-Tar, and Tim's email address. You can also email me if you have any questions. Thanks, and I look forward to talking with you next time.